John 12, 12 through 32. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will, be my servant, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned a few minutes ago, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday commemorates the event that we just read about in the Gospel of John chapter 12. It starts the last week of Jesus's earthly life on the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday before he is crucified on the cross. He enters into Jerusalem during the Passover festival and people welcome him as the king, as people wave palm branches as he enters into the street. That's why we call this day Palm Sunday, or it's also known as Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now in all four of the gospels, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here in John, and in each of the Gospels, it's given significance that is almost unparalleled. It's a really, really important piece of Jesus's earthly ministry. And John, in our story this morning, gives it a particular significance and shows it to be really the turning point of the entire Gospel of John. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I love the way that John structures the way he tells this story. What he does for us here is present multiple perspectives, multiple perspectives on who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. You might find it helpful to think about it like you're watching a movie and uh, a movie is giving you in one scene various dynamics and various perspectives on what's happening. As an example, I recently watched a movie that I really loved. It's called Creed. Some of you might have seen Creed. If you're a Rocky fan, 
which you should be, by the way, you should watch Creed. It's a really well done film. Very, very good movie. And there's one part in Creed that's about a five minute fight scene. It's about a boxer and it's consecutively shot in one shot. And it's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It's really amazingly well done. And throughout the scene, the camera will go from one fighter and then slowly move to another fighter and then move to the referee and then move to the people in the corner of the ring and then move to the crowd. It's brilliant. It shows varied perspectives on what's happening in the midst of the fight. And that's exactly what John is doing for us here as he tells us the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. I'm going to give you this morning three different perspectives. Three different perspectives about what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry. We're going to see the perspective of the crowd. We're going to see the perspective of the disciples. And then the perspective of Jesus himself. So those are the three points for our sermon this morning. But let me summarize the main point of John 12 like this. Here's what we want to hear. Jesus is the true king and he came to destroy evil by his death. That's the big idea. Jesus is the true king and he came to destroy evil by his death. So let's look at that idea via these three perspectives. First, the perspective of the crowd on Jesus. Now, we skipped chapter 11. We're going to go back to that next week, by the way, for Easter. So don't think that we're missing chapter 11 uh, because we just forgot it. We're going back next week. But if you read chapter 11, you'll see that uh, there's an important context in which Jesus enters into Jerusalem here. And the context is important for us to understand what's really happening. In the background, there's two big things going on. The first big thing going on is that Jesus is at the height of his popularity. His earthly ministry is riding high. The crest of the wave is what we find here. He's just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you see in the, in the beginning of verse 12 that a lot of people come to the festival of Passover just to see Jesus because they've heard about what Jesus did. So Jesus is popular. People are fascinated with Jesus. And you see that in the crowds that gather to welcome him. That's one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening, though, is that Jesus has a bounty on his head. Jesus has already, at this point, been set apart and designated as a criminal by the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Jewish scribes and teachers of the day. And we read early in chapter 12 that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they decided they were going to kill Lazarus off as well. Jesus, in just a few days, is going to be arrested. He's going to be charged with treason against the Roman Empire for setting himself up to be a king other than Caesar. And he's going to be put to death via crucifixion. And so the tension is really, really high as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The crowds love and adore him, but behind the scenes, there are already people exercising and working to see to it that Jesus is killed. And so he comes into the city with all of these things going on. He enters as a popular person, but also as a criminal. And given that background, we see in verse 12 that a large crowd gathers in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, which was the largest festival of the Jewish year then, just as it is now. And these people hear that Jesus is coming, and they get excited, 
And they go out up and down the streets along the sides of the streets to greet him. And we read that there are both Jewish people who've come from all over and Gentiles. The Greeks in verse 20 are there as well. And what happens? Well, the crowd, they take out palm branches and they wave the palm branches as Jesus walks into the city. And they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, that's a direct quote from Psalm 118 with one addition. The addition is at the end there, even the King, even the King of Israel. So the people are very clearly and very overtly welcoming and triumphing Jesus here as a king as the one who has come to rescue them, to bless them, to liberate them. So that seems pretty great, right? The perspective of the crowd seems to be good. But we need to look a little bit deeper. What does the crowd really think of Jesus? And why are they doing what they do? Maybe a way to think about it is like this. Why are they using palm branches? You ever thought about that? Why is Palm Sunday Palm Sunday? Well, the palm branches are not neutral. It's not like they just randomly grab branches from the nearest tree and take them so that they can fan Jesus as he enters into the city. No, palm branches had a particular symbolic significance in first century Judea. Palm branches represented the Jewish hope of liberation. Palm branches were a symbol of nationalistic, patriotic pride for a first century Jew. In the prior hundred years before Jesus was born, the Jews had rebelled against the Roman Empire twice. And in both of those rebellions, they had minted their own coins. And on those coins was inscribed a palm branch. A palm branch is basically a flag. It has the same symbolic meaning and the same weight and pull behind it. So when the Jewish people wave palm branches, they're basically saying, we want Jesus to come and liberate our nation from its oppression from Rome. This isn't at all unlike a July the 4th parade on Main Street in any town in America on July the 4th, where nationalistic zeal and patriotic fervor is at a fever pitch and pride is on display. So that's the real perspective of the crowds, you see. The crowds view Jesus here primarily as someone who is going to be a political liberator. They want Jesus to rescue them from Rome. Not necessarily from sin, not necessarily from Satan, but from Rome. They're excited about the earthly kingdom that they think Jesus will bring and not the kingdom of God that he's been talking about. That's the perspective of the crowd. They see Jesus as someone who's going to make their nation whole again. Which helps explain what, why Jesus does what he does. He comes into the city and notice that he doesn't deny that he's the king. Jesus doesn't say, hey, whoa, 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 set down the palm branches. I'm not who you think I am. He doesn't do that at all. He accepts their praise. He accepts their adulation. But he does something that's extremely strange for a king. He rides in on a donkey. This is like in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, king of Gondor, riding in on a hobbit's pony. 
It makes no sense. It's a contradiction in terms. Kings and generals and lords, they enter into the villages and the towns that they're going to conquer on war horses with the sword in their hand, pristine and regal in their bearing. But Jesus sits on the foal of a colt, on a donkey. Donkey. What is he doing? Jesus is correcting the perspective of the crowd here. He's saying, yes, I am the king, but I'm not the kind of king you're expecting. And I don't come in the way that you expect. I am a humble king. I'm a king who comes riding a beast of burden. I'm a king who comes primarily not to be served, but to serve, even to the point of death on a cross. So Jesus doesn't enter into Jerusalem like a general on a war horse. Jesus comes in meekness on a donkey. And Jesus is communicating that he didn't come primarily to liberate these people from Rome. He came primarily to liberate from the true enemy, the devil and sin. Now the crowd doesn't get it. We know why they don't get it because in five days they're not saying Hosanna. They're saying what? Crucify him. Crucify him. You're not the king that we expected at all. So the perspective of the crowd is one of Jesus as a nationalistic hero. He's a person that they can connect with their political aspirations. Is there anything we can learn from this 2,000 years later? I think we can. I think that today there's a similar temptation all over the world, but I think perhaps in our country in particular. In fact, from a historical perspective, there's a long history in America of confusing in various ways our American identity with our Christian identity. I think it's fair to say that just as these crowds saw devotion to Jesus as just another way of being a good patriotic Jewish person, so today in many places and in many people, we see devotion to Jesus as just another way of being a good, proud, moralistic, upstanding American citizen. Can I speak to you clearly for just a second? Because this is all over the New Testament and it's very apparent here. The fact that you are an American in and of itself gets you no closer to Jesus than if you were Japanese or Bolivian or Iranian or Russian. It makes no difference. And when we are tempted to too closely associate the person and work of Jesus with our own country, with our own politics, with our own flags or palms, we're walking into a dangerous place. By the way, as a side note, that's why we don't have a flag in our worship gatherings. It's not because we're unpatriotic. It has nothing to do with patriotism. It's because the kingdom of God should never be tied too closely with any one nation state. When I was at Westminster Seminary uh, in Philadelphia, the main assembly and gathering hall had along the walls of the side of the assembly flags from every nation that was represented at the seminary, which was a lot of people. Westminster was over 50% non-American. And I remember being struck by that when I was a student there, looking around and seeing people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered together in one church family to worship Jesus. It's much better to have all flags joined in the celebration of Christ, palms that honor a universal Messiah. I think we are 
at times risking the danger of too closely associating Jesus with our own political or national identity, just as the Jews were then. The point is that Jesus cannot be co-opted by any of our ideologies, by any of our nations, by any of the things that politicians want to do, whether we agree with them or not. So the perspective on the crowds is a little bit skewed, and Jesus seeks to correct it. Secondly, we see the perspective of the disciples. You'll see that Jesus enters into the city, and then in verse 16, John gives us what I think is a fascinating insight into what was going on with the disciples when this happened. John would know because John was there, and he's giving us an eyewitness account. Look at what he says there in verse 16. He says, Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what's the perspective of the disciples? It's a perspective of confusion. Shocker. That's typically the perspective of the disciples. It's a perspective at best of a slowly progressing, but still very limited understanding of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Now, I think that's really interesting. John quotes in verse 15 from an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. He quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And uh, the context of that quote is really important and significant. I just want to read a few more of the verses and let you listen to this. You can read along on the slides as well. But as a Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, just listen to these verses and see how, from a Christian perspective, they clearly point us to Jesus. Listen to this quote that John is putting in the Palm Sunday text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Now notice the language there. He will come mounted on a donkey. He will rule from sea to sea. He will defeat all his enemies. He will do this by making a covenant of blood with his people. We read that as Christians and we see all manner of signs pointing us to Jesus. It seems like Jesus is vivid and apparent in those verses. And Jesus saw himself as very clearly fulfilling those verses. The disciples would have known those verses. They probably didn't have a copy of the Old Testament. They likely have these verses memorized. And yet they don't see it at all. In fact, John says they never understood it until after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That's what verse 16 means when it says glorified. After Jesus was glorified, they understood these things. So their perspective is one of confusion. And I think that's important for us to think about for a minute. It's important for us to hear. Maybe that's where you are. <laughs> it's okay to admit, admit that, by the way. Maybe you're in a place of confusion when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the scripture. 
Maybe you're someone that hears these stories and you listen to me get up and talk about them and you listen to others talk about the Bible and you hear about Jesus, but it all doesn't really fully compute to you. It just doesn't make that much sense. Or maybe you see a little bit of it, but by and large, it's just confusing and strange and weird. And maybe you have friends that are seriously devoted followers of Jesus. They give a lot of money away. They go and serve. They have their kids doing all kinds of church stuff. They're just churched people. And you think, I'm glad I'm friends with this person, but that's just weird. They seem way too radical, way too extreme for me. I just don't get it. I don't see why it's that important. My best friend in college uh, was just like that when we were in college together. Um, we went to Baylor, so there's a lot of Christians at Baylor, for better or for worse. And uh, he was just confused by the kind of Christian culture of Baylor. And he would often talk to me like, I don't understand why y'all do this or why y'all do this or why y'all do this. Now, he would have said he was a Christian, but he was just like, I don't understand people that take this so seriously. It's been 15, 20 years later, and he's recently experienced a conversion. The Holy Spirit has opened his eyes. And we used to text all the time about how terrible Baylor football and Baylor basketball is. And now all he texts me is questions about the Bible. And I'm like, now I'm thinking, man, you're too passionate. You know, <laughs> It's like been a complete turnaround because the Spirit of God has opened his eyes. And here's what I want to say. Here's the point. If you're in a place where you're like, I just don't get why all these people devote their entire lives to Jesus and to the church. The reason you don't get that and someone else does isn't because they're more religious than you or more spiritual than you or smarter than you or nicer than you. It's because the Spirit of God has sovereignly, in his wisdom and grace, revealed to them who Jesus is. The reason that people devote their lives to Jesus isn't because of something that's inherent in them. It's because of something that's happened to them. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples. The disciples spent their lives with Jesus and they still don't get it until after it's all done and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, at the very end, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, before he ascends into heaven, he's giving his disciples sort of like a crash course in seminary. And I love this verse. Listen to Luke 24, 44 and 45. This is what Jesus says to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, disciples, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And then here's what Luke tells us. Listen to this. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. No one gets it until the Holy Spirit shows it to them. And, and that's what we want to be about here, by the way. If, if you're in a place right now where you feel just kind of confused, you're not sure you get it, and you're not sure you want to devote your life to Jesus and to his people, that's okay. We're glad you're here. We started this church to have conversations with people in your position. And we'd love to talk to you more about that. We'd love for you to hear about what it means to follow Jesus. But really, we're praying that you will have, you will have an aha moment maybe even today, where the Holy Spirit comes and boom, illumines your eyes and wakes you up to see Jesus for who he is. The reason that hasn't happened yet isn't because you're dumber than everyone else. The disciples didn't even get it and they saw. They saw him raise Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. No, the Holy Spirit had to open their eyes. We pray that he'll do the same for you.
would love to talk to you more about that if you would like. The perspective of the crowds, Jesus is our national hero. The perspective of the disciples, we're not sure who Jesus is. Thirdly, the perspective of Jesus. What is Jesus' own perspective on what's happening here and on what he's doing? Verse 20, we read that a couple of Greeks come and ask Philip and Andrew, a couple of the disciples, hey, we want to see Jesus, verse 21. And so they take him to Jesus. And then Jesus, in verse 23, says something really important. And really, this is the major turning point in John's gospel. Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we've been going through John, and we've seen multiple times where Jesus has said, the hour has not yet come. Remember at the wedding in Cana, for example, Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine, do something. And Jesus says, woman, the hour has not yet come. But now he's saying, the hour has come. The time is here for the Son of Man to do what he was sent to this world to do. The time is here for the Son of Man to go to the cross. For the Son of Man, for Jesus to to die. That's his mission. He makes it very clear that he came to die. So why? Why this mission? Why did Jesus die? Now, if I were to ask you that, I suspect many, if not most of you, would say, Jesus died to forgive me my sins. And that would be correct. That's true. It's absolutely why Jesus died. But that's not what Jesus says here. In fact, Jesus says nothing in these verses about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, virtually, Jesus is saying here, and get ready for this, but he's saying that we have more problems than just the fact that we're sinners. Welcome to Christ Church. You're a sinner, and you also have more problems than that. Um, But he came to heal those problems. Look at what he says in verse 31. Here's why he came. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus is saying here that the purpose of his death is to defeat and cast out the ruler of this world. That is the devil, Satan himself. Jesus's death is like the great exorcism in history. That's what's happening at the cross. He's throwing out the devil. Now, as we wrap up, I want you to think about what that means for you. Here's what that means for you. And this is actually quite radical and quite severe. It means that there are only two types of people in the world. There are people that are in bondage to Jesus by faith. And there are people that are in bondage, enslaved to Satan. There are no neutral people that have yet to make a choice. Now, you might think, that's crazy. I'm not enslaved to Satan. You need to wrestle with that if you want to understand what Jesus is about and what the New Testament is about. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that before people become Christians, we all, he says, followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Here's what Jesus is saying. He came to liberate, not from Rome, but to liberate all of us who are captives to the devil, captives to the evil one. Jesus came to rescue you out of that. He came to set prisoners free. He came to overthrow the powers and the principalities of this world who are very real and very strong. 
And he does this at the cross. That's why he says, when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up in death on a cross, and when I am also glorified on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus, in humbling himself to death, is actually achieving the greatest victory he could have achieved. It's humiliating to die on a cross, but it's also his exaltation because he's in the cross declaring his victory over evil. Here's the point. The cross is the place where the powers of Satan brought all their strength to the attack and where they were defeated. The cross is the place where Satan thought, I have achieved the victory, and yet it was the moment in which his demise was assured. Now, you might not believe that. You might think that sounds crazy, that you were actually a slave to the evil one outside of Christ. That sounds too extreme. That sounds too radical. But that's what Jesus says. And the main way, I'm convinced, the main way that this shows up in people's lives is not through like some weird cult practices. The main way it shows up in your life is when you're the type of person that says, yeah, I'm okay with Jesus. I like the church. I understand that it's important, but I'll do all that later. I've got some priorities right now that I'm really focusing on that are more important to me. I need to focus on this. I need to get this taken care of. I need to get over this hump. I need to get the promotion. I need to get my kids out of the house. I need to do whatever, and then I'll worry about my spiritual life. Listen, that's just an excuse for the fact that you cannot come to Jesus on your own because you're in bondage. You're in bondage. You're a slave, powerless, And so when you say, yeah, it's important, but I'll do it later, what you're really showing is how radically unable you are to help yourself. What you need is Jesus to break into the prison that is your life, tear the chains out of the wall, and rescue you. Palm Sunday is the announcement that that is exactly what he has done. Palm Sunday is the announcement that the devil is not on the throne of this world any longer, and he's not on the throne of your life any longer. Palm Sunday is Jesus declaring, I am your rightful king and your life will flourish and thrive when you come to see that. Now, the Spirit's at work right now and it's going to take the Holy Spirit for you to see that that's the case in your life, for you to turn away from your bondage, from your sin and accept Jesus' liberating grace for you. You ready to do that? What's your perspective? Which camera shot? Are you viewing Jesus through? The crowds? Jesus is just part of my good, decent, moral American life. Turn away from that in repentance and believe. The disciples? Confusion, misunderstanding. Ask for the help of the Holy Spirit that he may awaken you to see Jesus for who he is. Is your perspective that of Jesus himself? that he is the one who comes to vanquish the devil and sin and death and that he will draw all people to himself through his victorious resurrection. If that's where you are, then rest in that and rejoice because Jesus came to die and Jesus came to conquer death through his resurrection. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.